Merry Christmas to you all. I, I agree with Jason. Heard some voices up there. Definitely have a future ministry of music. Also heard some voices up there um, that have a ministry in other places. And uh, we'll, uh, but I, I probably shouldn't be saying that to their parents. Um, we apologize for the par- partial view blocked uh, with the stable. I thought it was interesting. Uh, in, in our story, there's no room in the inn, and, and today there was no room for the inn, the stable over here in the middle. It was going to be completely blocking the screen, so we moved it off to the side. So some of you who are like, I know the hymns, but not all the I'm sorry for that. We'll get a sycamore tree or something up over here so you can see the words uh, afterward. But uh, how many of you um, were at Bethlehem Revisited this last weekend? Uh, it was always do an amazing job uh, there at College Heights Baptist, got this beautiful little picture of the nativity, nativity. I I love especially our Alaskan version of the angels with the headbands and hand warmers and their mitts, right? I thought they was, I heard them sing, hark the herald angels sing, I've got frostbite on my wing. It was a weird rendition that I had never heard before, but a sweet, sweet moment. Um, we, we, we talk about, we have this scene in our heads of this silent night, this, this heavenly peace that, that was there in, in this moment in Bethlehem. But the picture that Matthew paints for us is in stark contrast with anything that resem- resembles heavenly peace. Last week in chapter 1, we saw the shame and the scandal of an unwed pregnancy, an almost divorce, God having to navigate Joseph through a very difficult situation. This week, we're going to see more of the same as we see our young family on the run. We will see murder, we will see danger, we will see lies and narrow escapes. Nothing like a heavenly peace. N.T. Wright said it this way, before the Prince of Peace had even learned to walk and talk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. This story starts out dark, but even when the moment is darkest, what we're going to find is God is faithful to fulfill every promise he made. And I want us to see in this morning from this text that even when it looks dark, even when it looks hopeless and, and chaotic, or unjust in our lives, that our true king is on the throne, that he is in control, and and he will keep every promise he's ever made to us. Amen. We're walking through the book of Matthew, and would invite you back at the welcome table. There's a reading and prayer plan as we walk through this together. Take us through the end of next October. There's also a a PDF online on our website's homepage. Um, We have been saying that Matthew's intended meaning, the goal, the reason he wrote this book was to tell us, remind us, assure us that Jesus is the king, that he has come, as we sing, to rescue and to rule the world. And, and Matthew, it's, it's really cool. Chapter 2, we're going to see more of the same. Today, we're going to see that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And Matthew, he's going to continue to show us these promises that were made to Israel and the whole world uh, hundreds and thousands of years before this. This morning, we're going to see four of those explicitly referenced, promised, and fulfilled um, in this passage. And th- this morning's uh, passage is going to work around some of the birth and and first few years of Jesus's life. Now, Luke 1 is where we get a lot of our nativity scene with the shepherds and the donkeys and the swaddling clothes. Matthew has a very different purpose in mind. He wants to answer the question, how does the earth receive her king? And what we're going to see is there are foreigners from afar who come to honor him, while right in his own backyard, he's met with hostility and indifference. 
And as we walk through this, we're, we're going to see the wise men's worship of the king. We're going to see Herod's hostility toward the king. But through it all, we'll see God providentially, sovereignly guiding the entire thing. So let's start with the wise men, their worship of Jesus. So verse 1 of, of Matthew chapter 2 will be in the ESV. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, who are these wise men? Well, we know the song. Probably a lot of us have our ideas from the song. You know what? We three kings of Orient are. I'm here to tell you in the most loving way possible, this first line is from the pit of Hades. At least it's not true. That, that's probably a little dramatic, Justin. But um, we, we look at this. It says three kings. We're never told that. It's a plural, wise men. Uh, but we're never told there are three. We could have just as easily sung, we, 77 kings of Orientar. We don't know. It didn't sing quite as well. I think that one of the reasons might be because of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we're just going to say each king got a present to give, um, which, again, is not necessarily indicated in our story. Also, we call them kings. Um, they, they are not kings. The, the Greek word there is, is magos, which is the singular for magi, which can mean a lot of different things, like a dream interpreter or a magician. What we know of these men is they're following the stars. These were ancient astronomers of some sort. So maybe instead of our minds thinking about the king with a crown, we should be thinking of nerds with pocket protectors. These are basically ancient scientists. Sorry to ruin your nativity scene uh, that you got in your house. But we, we see these men coming, uh, following the stars. And, and, and not only are there not three, and are they not kings, they're not really from the Orient. When in English, when we say Orient, we're thinking what? The Far East. We're thinking, we're thinking China, Mongolia, but really these kings were probably from much closer in the distance that they had traveled, very likely because of uh, what they did. They were probably from Persia or from Babylon. And on top of all of that, they're not even in the nativity scene at all. Um, it says in verse 1, now after Jesus was born, and we know, when we do the math, the time it would have taken them to follow the star, get to Jerusalem, ask Herod about this, then go down to Jerusalem. It's at least days, if not weeks, or even months. Our story will show us maybe as many as two years after Jesus had been born. So uh, the nativity scene with the shepherds and the wise men together needs to be removed from your mantelpiece immediately. <laughs> because we three kings of Orient aren't, Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Merry Christmas. Number two. Verse two. So these wise men, they come, they're saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So who are these wise men and what is the star they're following? Now again, we're, we're not told in particular. We, we know a couple things that were happening around this time. Halley's Comet came soaring through the sky around 1211 BC, but that's probably a good six, seven years before Jesus would have been born. So we ballpark him around 4 BC when he would have been born. Um, it could have been a supernova, an exploding star, certainly would have been cool and caught the eye. Um, some say around 6-5 BC, there was this cool event. Three different times, Jupiter and Saturn crossed each other's paths. Now, symbolically, uh, the stars and planets meant a lot to the people at that time, and Saturn represented the people of the Jew, the Jewish people, and Jupiter represented the idea of, of royalty or kingship. And so here you'd have God putting these two planets in each other's paths. Born is the king of the Jews. But again, that's, that's guesswork. What we know is God is a God of miracles. Psalm 8.3 says, The stars you set in place. God can move around stars and planets with his pinky finger. 
So this could have been an angel up there dabbing, right? Bethlehem. We just are not, we're not told. I don't know. That was the, that's the message remixed version. Um, but what we do know is, 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 is very likely, these could, be, these, these could be Babylonian descendants. You remember when Daniel was in, as part of the exile in Babylon and, and what he was doing at the time, that he may have trained some of these men. Because what we do know is, is the descendants, these, these guys know the prophecy, right? What's, what's clear and what's important in this passage is they understand that this star indicates the king of the Jews has been born. And that's what Matthew wants us to clue into. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So here come the wise men. They see Herod in Jerusalem. They tell him, they ask him about the star, and, and Herod reacts. Now, who is Herod? Well, at the time, uh, Israel is not ruled. They're not autonomous. They're under Roman rule. And, and Rome has divided Israel up into provinces, uh, several of them. Uh, down the south end of Israel, there's the province of Judea, where Jerusalem and Bethlehem would have been located. And Herod the Great was the ruler, the, the king or tetrarch of Judea at the time. Now, it's his son Herod Antipas who's actually the one that's ruling at the time of Jesus' ministry and his death. But this Herod, I'm going to warn you, he is a crazy man. He is angry. He is petty. He kills his own wife. He, he kills several of his own children because he thinks they're threats to his crown. And then in one of those horrible desires he had on his wish list when he died at the time of his death, he wanted over the, the, all the families in the area that he ruled, he wanted one member of each person's family to be executed at the time of his death so that it would ensure that at his funeral, everybody would be mourning for one reason or another. He's a monster. Now, so you can get to sleep tonight, they didn't do that. That was his wish, and they didn't carry it out. But as you can see, um, this man is not a pillar of stability and kindness. Herod is even actually a Jew. He, he, he sort of snuggled up with the Roman Empire to get into this in the first place, this position. His mom is actually Arabian, and his dad is an Edomite which is from the line of Esau. Now, now, the readers would be tracking with this. You remember all the way back to Jacob and Esau. What happened? Esau, whose birthright was stolen from e, uh, Jacob, who becomes named Israel, he tries to chase him down and kill him. And again in this story, we will see echoes of the descendants of Esau hunting down and trying to snuff out the descendants of Israel. And then in verse 3, it's obvious here, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Why is he freaking out? Well, he's wormed his way into power, and he hears of this Messiah, of the right royal David, who would come and take power, and who loses their crown? Herod wants no part of this Messiah, this king. And so, of course, this enraged, jealous tyrant who's willing to kill his own family, you think he's going to bat an eye to kill this little baby who could be a threat to his crown? This is par for the course for this jealous, insecure tyrant. What's interesting to note in verse 3, it says not only was he troubled, but so was all of Jerusalem with him. Now, we're not told why they're troubled. You can imagine, and we're going to see from his actions in this story, that if Herod's, he's already unstable, and if he's really angry, we could all be in trouble. And even if this Messiah comes, there's hopes and, and dreams attached to him. But so, a political revolution in an already tumultuous time in Rome, this could spell disaster. 
But what we do know here, what Matthew's trying to indicate to us is this is not your nice, precious moments, kings in a stable giving gifts that we often conjure up when we think about this moment in history. What Matthew's trying to tell us here is political dynamite. Here's Herod, the imposter. And and, and now comes the the true king of the Jews. This would mean not just tumult in individuals' lives, but over all of that area and the Roman Empire. This king is coming. And in verse 4, it says, Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now you you notice here, Herod knows the, the prophecy. He knows there's supposed to be a king coming. And so we asked the local Jewish leaders, the the scribes and and priests, about this. And they know too. They told him in Bethlehem, for it is written by the prophets. And here's our first of four prophecies. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, which is now modern day Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And here he is, that shepherd in a manger. Now it says Bethlehem. It was a pretty unimportant little podunk town But he says, even though uh, you might be insignificant in society's eyes at the time, you are very significant because from you is going to come the king of the world. Bethlehem means house of bread. And it was only about five miles south of Jerusalem, which for us would be just a hop in the car. For them, if you're on foot, uh, it takes a little bit longer. You could try to call an Uber donkey and they might be able to help you get down there. I thought of that and then I went to Google Images and you know what exists. I guess this is... Already a thing. I love, I love Google Images. Um, now, this is the same town that King David was born in. And Matthew's primarily Jewish audience would have been tracking with this. When he says Bethlehem, from Bethlehem, here comes the king, they're tracking. Like if we say D.C. or Juno, these towns have significance to us culturally. So when he says, here comes the king from Bethlehem, they're putting all the pieces together. This is the one. But some of them are troubled by this information. Interestingly, the Jewish leaders, they know the prophecy. Do you see this? The chief priests and scribes told Herod all about this. They they know where Jesus is supposed to be born. They have all the details. But did you notice, did any of them jump on the camel caravan of the Magi to go down and worship him? What we don't have indicated in our story is any of his own coming to worship In fact, in John chapter 1, it says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And it's one thing to know about Jesus. It is another thing to worship him and follow him. It should cause us to pause and ask, where is our heart today? Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring the word that I may too come and wink, wink, worship him. We know that's not Herod's intention at all, is it? Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So it indicates the star's moving around. We don't know what God's doing with this thing, but he leads them to uh, the house. When they saw this, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, again, this is not the stable or the, the cave or wherever they were when he was born. This is, this is a while later. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. We don't know what these ancient astronomers knew, but they sought after this star and they came to a place of worshipping this king. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. In Jesus' upside-down kingdom, it's the pagan astrologers, not the Jewish king, not the Jewish leaders, who come and bow before the true king. Matthew is going to again and again tell us of the kind of people who come to Jesus. And he's going to tell us that, that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the entire world. This is a nod to uh, Psalm 72.10. The western kings of Tarshish and other distant lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. Now again, these men aren't kings, but they are men of renown from other countries that are coming to see this king. And they bring him gold and frankincense and myrrh, the most valuable things they have. You know they were valuable because one of them was turned into an essential oil. That's, that's how much these things, these things matter my goodness. It also fulfills Isaiah 66. So I will gather all nations and peoples together and they will see my glory. And these wise men, this little man who might not even be able to walk and talk at this point, they behold the glory of the king to all who received him. He gave the right to be called children of God. Jesus came for everybody. Go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew will conclude this gospel with. We see the worship of these wise men from afar, but in, ho in hometown, nothing but hostility. Look at Herod, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, didn't come back and tell him like he had asked, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That gives us our two-year ballpark of, of when this is going down. Now, we're not told how many male children died here. We know Bethlehem was a small town. It could have been a handful, but he also says it was in the region in that surrounding area. But listen, one baby killed in this place would be enough to be horrific and to grieve. And here we have man's way, man's choice for a king, Herod. And what is he doing? He's clinging to his crown, and he's taking others' lives to secure it. You have that juxtaposed with Jesus, God's choice for a king. And he doesn't slaughter the little ones. He says, let the little ones come to me. For such belong the kingdom of God. And Jesus would be one that would take a crown of thorns and he would not take the lives of others, but would actually give his own life so these little ones could be called the children of the Most High. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And here we have our second prophecy. This is from Jeremiah 31. It's verse 15, but the whole chapter matters. It says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
Now, this prophecy was written during the exile when the people were being banished to Assyria and to Babylon, and so all the nation was mourning over the loss of lives and their land. Rachel, who's referenced here in the prophecy, she was one of Jacob's, or Israel's, wives. And, and we know that she had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Rama, the city that's indicated here, is in the tribe of Benjamin. That's how some of those dots get connected. It was also a holding state as they were being driven into exile, the people would all pass through Rama to be taken account of as they were driven away from their land. Rachel herself was buried near Bethlehem. She actually died in the process of giving birth. Out of death comes life. But the cool part is, and this had become kind of a proverb or a saying for mothers of Israel at the loss of, of Jewish children, um, and in the midst of this darkness and this pain and then this death, Jeremiah 31 continues. And two verses later, out of exile, out of darkness, out of hopelessness, he says this, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back. Here's a promise. They shall come back to their land. See, he says, one day you're going to be brought back. And you read the rest of Jeremiah 31. This is where we're introduced to the new covenant. God says, you can't keep the old covenant, the law, because you're sinners. I'm going to make a new covenant with you and replace your old disobedient hearts with a new heart, your old spirit with a new spirit, my son's spirit, my son's heart. And this indicates that out of deliverance, out of slavery and exile will come deliverance. And the people then and us today, there's a hope beyond the grave. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the moment, with the morning, that's the word. Out of slavery and, and really out of Egypt, what's symbolized there is we're going to see in our final picture that's painted this morning, God's guidance, number three. We, we've been seeing the perspective from these Eastern astrologers and the crazy king, but now we're going to see the perspective from God's guidance, from his all-sovereign hand. Look back up in verse 13. Now, when they had did, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, just like he had in chapter one, and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Again, Joseph hears the word of the Lord and he obeys. And remained there, verse 15, until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's our third prophecy. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is Hosea uh, chapter 11. And we'll often see in the Old Testament that Israel's called the son of God. Isn't that interesting language? to be used as a parallel is, is being formed here again. And amazingly, Jesus is not just fulfilling these prophecies about who he is. He is actually the fulfillment of the nation of Israel itself. Remember, we said Jesus is here for a new beginning, a genesis, as he used that word in the, the genealogy of Jesus, chapter one, the birth of Jesus, chapter one. Here again, we see a new beginning. And how did Israel, how were they born the first time? 
You remember the story as they were as Egypt is a central part. Anytime you hear Egypt language, some bells should start to be going off. This is rich with symbolism in Israel's history and the history of sin. So we remember Joseph, one of Israel's sons from Rachel. Now what happened with Joseph? He had some dreams. God told him what was coming down the pipeline. And this man, Joseph, was portrayed as righteous and obedient, hearing the word of the Lord and acting on it. And what happens? Joseph is sent to Egypt. Why? Because his own family will not receive him, try to enslave him and kill him. And so off he goes to Egypt to be spared. And what happens after that? In a turn of events, Joseph actually saves his family, bringing them down to Egypt to escape death. This time, it was in the form of a famine, which is the same thing that happened to Abraham, the father of Israel, when he came down to Egypt to avoid a famine. And as the people are are formed there in Egypt, what eventually happens? They're enslaved, and Moses comes and delivers the people of Israel out of bondage into the promised land. And here again today, Matthew's not making mistakes, you guys. He knows that he's mapping on to this story of the Old Testament. Here again, we have a Joseph, this time Jesus' father, who is also given dreams, who also responds in obedience, shown as a righteous man in chapter 1. And what does he do? By the word of the Lord, he brings his family to Egypt to avoid death. This time, not a famine, but Herod's sword. And after a time in Egypt, he will be brought back out of Egypt into the promised land. This time, not led by Moses, but the true and better Moses. Because what the law could not do because of our weak flesh Christ did Romans 8 is going to tell us a beautiful picture being laid out here of the true son of God the true Israel verse 19 but when Herod died behold an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying rise take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel it's time to come back But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now, Archelaus is is Herod's son. He's going to reign for a brief time because he was was even too unstable for the Roman government. He's a man at at the Passover time had 3,000 Jews exterminated just because. He's no better than his father, And so God redirects him up to the region of Galilee, a northern province outside of Archelaus's grip. And when he went, he uh, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is Joseph's hometown. They're going back to his first home. Now here is our fourth prophecy. Now notice here it says by the prophets. This time, we're not given a specific prophecy. In fact, scholars don't exactly know how this is being pieced together and what it is that's being nodded to, but there are a couple of themes that we see repeated quite a bit in the Old Testament that we can connect the dots. Um, Joseph, being spoken to in this dream, um, instead of Bethlehem revisited, he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth. Um, Now, Nazareth being this city in this little town really in this northern province of Galilee those who were down in Judea they sort of saw this as um, a, a backwoods kind of podunk province and especially that that city of Nazareth so so a backwoods town right and, and this is where I would often make a Nikiski joke um, 
but we got a lot of people starting to attend here from Nikiski, so I'm gonna back away because I know how some of you guys roll out there and I don't want to go anywhere near that. So we're just gonna say he was from a small place like Cooper Landing, right? Can you imagine the king of the Jews coming from Cooper Landing, am I right? Um, and remember John 1, Nathaniel asks the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Here's this small little town, and, and, and the town of Nazareth was seen as nothing, as it was rejected or despised, as was the king that would come out of it. And he's often referred to in this way in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53.3 being one of those. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We certainly see that even as an infant, and it's not going to get any better as he gets older. But there's another reference being made here. The name Nazareth is a very similar root. There's a word play here in Hebrew with the word branch, which is another term that's often used to describe the Messiah. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who's Jesse, the father of King David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit of him shall the nations inquire. What did we see in our story today? The nations inquiring as these wise men from afar came and asked, where is the king of the Jews? A new beginning for Israel as the true king is here. Jesus is the true king. And in this story, he's contrasted with a very, very bad king, the false king, King Herod, who is shown to be foolish. He is shown to be jealous and petty. He's consumed with nothing but himself and is willing to take the lives of others to keep himself in the position of power. But as we read the rest of Matthew's story, he's going to tell us about Jesus, the true king, who, unlike Herod, is wise who, unlike Herod, is not consumed with himself at all, but is completely about the good of others. And this Jesus will not take the lives of others, but he will give his own so that we may have life. Jesus is also the true Israel. Whereas Israel, in the story, they continue. I mean, read the Old Testament. How many times do they fail to trust and obey God? They're wandering in the wilderness before they ever get to the land. Then when they get to the land, they continue to disobey, are driven away from the land. But what we're going to see from Jesus, the true son of God, the true Israel, that he never fails. And Jesus, when he delivers his people out of bondage and slavery of Egypt and brings us into the land of rest and peace, it is an eternal rest. Because our Jesus will never fail to trust and obey his God on our behalf. Chapter 1 reminded us that Jesus is the right man for the job. Matthew wanted to show us that Jesus is from the right royal line. From Abraham, from David, through the exile, came the one who would fulfill every promise. Then we saw in the second half, he's the right God for the job. That Jesus was born of a virgin from the Holy Spirit. And why did we say last week he had to be God? Only one with life can give us life in his death. That was Jesus and Jesus alone. And then today we see that he is the right king for the job, that God faithfully protects and provides this little one, protects and, and provides for this little one. So that one day he would be, unlike Herod, the false king, the true king, and not just of Israel, but of all nations. So what do we do with this passage? Well, this time of year, uh, whatever bedroom in your house gets used the least seems to get turned into the wrapping paper station, right? This is kind of how you got a guest room or a kid you don't like or whatever it is. And so you use their room, and it's just chaos, right? There is nothing but death and destruction of bows and wrapping paper. 
It's madness. Now, to me, it can look like madness. Um, you know, to, to everybody in our family has, you know, you all have a Christmas chaos coordinator. So Jill just reminds me, no, don't worry, this is all part of the process. And what looks like chaos and scattered paper and bows right now will one day, namely Christmas, will look like a beautiful stack of presents to be received with joy. Isn't this exactly how your living room looks right now? Yeah, I know mine does. So it's amazing. Um, this story today, from, from one angle, looks like nothing but suffering and death and chaos. But what we see is each step of the way, not only is God in control, but he is fulfilling promises that he had made hundreds and thousands of years in advance. That everything that's happening here is part of God's beautiful, sovereign plan to win his beloved back. And maybe like our story today, you're not experiencing a silent night. You're not sleeping in heavenly peace. There's chaos in your life. There's pain. There's weeping. There's darkness. And, and, and you don't see how in the world God could be using it all for good. And listen, I don't have any easy answers for you. We butt up against the problem of suffering and, and we just don't have pat answers for this. But what Matthew wants to hear in this, us to hear in this story is that God isn't just on some distant throne going, yeah, good luck with all that. What does he do? He empties himself. He puts on flesh. And he enters into our pain, into our world of misery and suffering and violence and injustice. That God came to be with us where the pain is. In fact, yes, last week, what did we say? His name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God wants to be with us. He is with us today. And Jesus, Emmanuel, can truly say, I get it. I've walked that road, which is what, when we're in our deepest place of pain, that's what we most need to hear. Not a, not a trite truism, but to somebody come and put their arm around us, be there with us in and through the pain and never leave us or forsake us. And that's what we have in this little baby. And he said, I actually came to rescue you from the mess, the mess that y'all created. And I'm a light shining in the darkness and the darkness shall not, will not, can never put it out. And no matter what it looks like from our point of view, the, the, some of these things can look so meaningless, uh, so, so pointless, the suffering and pain in our lives. But this is actually God preserving and protecting and coming through on every promise that he's ever made. You see, this story from us, it could just look like Jesus. This is just a crazy beginning. Jesus is running all around. This is not how God planned it, right? But what do these prophecies tell us? He said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He said there would be weeping in Ramah. He said that it would be out of Egypt, I'd call my son. He said he'll be called the Nazarene. These weren't detours on God's, on God's path. These are not mistakes. God does not make mistakes in our lives. And if we, like Joseph, will listen and obey his voice, he will protect us, he'll preserve us, and he will guide us. In the midst of our death and violence and chaos, he's given us this gift the sweetest gift that could ever be given. And in today's story, we see three responses to the king. And you ask yourself, which character are you? It's one of those like tests on Facebook when you decide which Disney princess are you? Um, Belle. Um, <laughs> hopefully this has more profit than those. 
ask yourself in this character today, which one are you? Maybe, maybe in your heart today is the hostility of Herod. Maybe Herod, Herod didn't want a promised king to come. Why? Because he was going to take his throne, his crown. And in Herod's pride, he didn't want that. And if I'm honest, there are many times in my life where I say, God, I don't want you running my show. I got it. I'm in control. And I'm fighting with him over the steering wheel on a constant basis because I don't trust him. And what do I see? Whenever I do it my way, it leads to nothing but chaos and death. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Or, or maybe you're meeting him with the priest's passivity. What I mean by that, the Jewish leaders, they knew the prophecies, right? They knew the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But, but this stayed in their hearts. It did not make it into, or stayed in their heads. It didn't make it into their hearts. And they did not bow the knee. And many of us fall into this category, right? Man, some of us have been coming to church our whole lives. You could have told me this story, backward and forward. But the reality is, if it doesn't penetrate our hearts, if we don't seek him and worship him and follow him as Lord and Savior, it's all meaningless. Head knowledge without heart change is futile and pointless. And maybe what you're being invited into this morning is the worship of the wise men. It was these pagan outsiders. They would have been seen by these self-righteous Jews as the dirty outsiders, as the ones who weren't even worthy to step into the house. And yet, what do we see? They're the only ones in the story that are actually seeking him. And in verse 11, we're reminded, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We're promised by Jesus later on in this book, seek and you will find. These wise men, you think about the journey, traveling through the desert, sometimes just vaguely seeing this star, and they pressed in and they eventually found what they were looking for. And maybe you're in a season where you're in the desert. You can maybe see a little star. Maybe you can't see anything at all. The promise to cling to here is the journey God's taking you on as you seek him. It's not filled with detours and mistakes. This is a God who loves you. And if you continue to seek, he says you will find. And the result will be joyful worship. And we will open up our treasures and say, Jesus, take it all. This life is much better when you're the king, the true king of my life. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your son, that you did not leave us in this world that is so very obviously filled with pain and suffering and violence and injustice. And Lord, we can't make sense of it. And there are things that have happened in some of our lives today that we have no good answers for. Why a sovereign God would allow these things, what kind of a world we're living in today, but what we're assured of this morning is that you are not indifferent to our pain. And there is no greater testimony to that than the fact that you would leave heaven and empty yourself and join us in the midst of the pain, rescue us from that pain. Father, some of us have heard this story every year since we were born, and it can become numb, it can become routine, an empty tradition. Pray that you would awaken our hearts, stir us anew to see Jesus for who he really is and be awestruck by the king of the universe who cloaked himself in flesh, came and lived among us a perfect life, dying in our place to give us life and right standing before the God whom before we had nothing but wrath, nothing but punishment coming from. Father, if there's someone today that has the hostility of Herod in their heart, 
and will not surrender that crown, that today you would gently break their pride, humble them, so we could enter into the house of God like those wise men, saying, Lord, take all my treasures, take everything, be the king of my life, that we might be a people today that praise you, that you've welcomed from afar, like those, those Gentile astrologers. You've welcomed us in, and to those who have believed and accepted, you have given the right to be called sons of God. It's in your son's beautiful name, Emmanuel, God with us, that we pray. Amen.